Hello, this is Roy Mitchell, and this is Hibla Minute. Martha Chavez is loved by many, and it was wonderful to have a chat with her. She's a trooper. The root canal didn't stop her from coming on Hibla Minute. She's a comedian, activist, and fellow podcaster. Check out her podcast, When Feminists Rule the World. I'll link to it. Like most people, you've heard Martha on the CBC. She's a regular guest on The Debaters and Because News. Our conversation was like a port visit. We talk about her coming to Canada, how she started in comedy, the pandemic, many things. She makes me laugh and she makes me think. And we'll end the show with music from the local band, The Salt Cellars. But first, my interview with Martha. Martha, welcome to Hibla Minute. You just had a root canal. How are you feeling? Horrible. <laughs> well, I, I've had root canals before, and they're terrible. So I'm glad you're here, and you sound amazing even under this pain. So thank you so much. And today, I haven't got any painkillers. None. <laughs> because I want to win from them. Aside from your root canal, how are you doing with this pandemic? Well, we are doing fine because we, like Linda and I, get along. Otherwise, she would have strangled me because <laughs> she's been working at home since the 14th. Yeah, we are doing fine. I'm not going to complain because there are people who don't have what we have, you know? At least we have a lack of anything. Right. We are very careful. I have lived in emergency situations before in my life. So I know how it is, you know, like when the earthquake, when the revolution, but this one is very freaky because it's an enemy that you cannot see. Exactly. And it, it has changed our lives in the sense that uh, I do go outside. I, go, I am the one who goes and does the shopping in spite that I am the germophobe, but I don't allow Linda because I don't know that she can navigate <laughs> <laughs> this kind of emergency situation I am used to, right? It has changed from month to month. Like at the beginning, we were absolutely freaked out. I thought that we were going to die because of everything that you saw on TV and everything. I thought it's coming like a horror movie. But then we started adapting. We didn't have hand sanitizer. I always carry, even before, I am a germaphobe. I always carry hand sanitizer. But then there was no hand sanitizer, no alcohol. I have a lot of friends here in the village, like uh, shop owners. The lady from Pusateris will keep me my alcohol bottle <laughs> or the hand sanitizer, the other person. So I was going through several places to have. I was really worried about that. Then I find out that you can use peroxide. So I had to start looking for peroxide. To be brief in my answer, we have been doing well, but it has been, how do you call it, an adaptation. Yeah, we cannot enter the apartment willy-nilly. We cannot go out of the apartment willy-nilly like, a, where are you going without your mask? It's like, where are you going without your pants? Right. You know, I'm worried about my family in Guatemala. I am worried about my brother has um, MS. He was just diagnosed with MS, so his, his immune system is very bad. I'm worried about Nana. She has diabetes and, and a lot of other complications there in Guatemala. But they have been uh, in quarantine. The president put them in quarantine since the 14th of March. Canadians cannot go to Guatemala. That's what worries me the most and, and Linda's father. I have asthma. I have respiratory problems. So I, I was thinking if it, if it gets me, I'm, I'm going to die. Not only that, the thing is that my business as I know it, stand-up comedy as I know it, is dead. 
at the moment because it's one of like, like entertainment is one of the things that is going to take harder to come back because uh, as it turns out, we speak moistly, you know, and they, when people laugh, they laugh moistly and there is a contamination ball. So it is, it is hard and it's hard to adapt. I have, I had on a few shows online. It's hard for me. You know, it's, it's hard. Like some, some people can have been able to adapt very easily, but I depend a lot on the energy of the crowd and I need to read a room before I do anything. So I did a ta- I taped a show. I taped 30 minutes of material, but not reading the room. When I do my shows, I always will read the room. What would they like? How are they reacting? I would sh- uh, shift gears when I see that this one is not going well. You know what I mean? It's, it's, like, it's something that we learn with experience, how to adapt to the rooms. But I find it hard. And you've been performing comedy for 25 years now. Yeah. You have the experience, right? So what got you started in the first place? Well, you know, I, I got started by a fluke. I was always told by my drunk friends that I was funny, you know. But you know, one thing is to be funny with your friends and another thing is to be funny for strangers. But I studied translation, modern languages and linguistics. And I wanted to be a live interpreter. And I was shy about my accent. So somebody said, take a comedy course so you can loosen up. And I took a comedy course with Andy Nullman, the CEO of Just for Love. The graduation was a comedy show for five minutes at an open mic. I did the show and then I got hooked right away. And I was in Montreal at the time that there was only Heidi Foss, the other female comic, and me. So I started getting a lot of shows. Like when you start, you are not funny by any means. You are just, you are new. Like in anything, you, you won't go and play in the, in the orchestra when you just, you just know a few notes in the guitar. I was thrown with the Lions right away. When I had a little bit of experience under my belt, I moved to Ontario because here is where the big bucks were. (laughs) 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 Because in Montreal, the English comedy circuit, it was, I don't know if it's bigger now, but it was very small then. So there were two clubs to do in Montreal. There was no road work, nothing like that. So comedians that came from Ontario to Montreal, they were, why don't you move? Why don't you move? And then one day, everything that has happened in my career has been uh, serendipitous. In Montreal, one day, Kenny Robinson, he came with the Nubians to Montreal. And I used to live in a co-op. And I had a, I had a neighbor, Shahid, who was Shahid Malik, who was a, a DJ at Much Music, a Music Plus in Montreal. So he says, you know, Mark, there is this comedy show and I am a, part of the, the, the people that are promoting it. And I'm sure that if I ask the producers, they can ask the MC, Kenny Robinson. And I knew Kenny because I had seen his comedy show in Montreal. If you can be on the show. And I go, yeah, put me on the show. I was at what is used to be Club Soda, 900 people. It was like the biggest audience that I ever had. Kenny put me on and then he liked me. And then he invited me to come to do his show here in Toronto. It was at the time when Toronto seemed another country from Montreal. Mark Wrestling, the owner of Yakex, was at the Nubians. He said to me, you know what? I want to sign you. I think that you can be as famous, he said, as Kathy Najimi. And I said, oh, 
And then he said, then he said the fat non insister act. <laughs> and I still signed with them. Then another serendipitous thing that happened to me with the Nubians was that the producer of a show called Comics, Comics that was on the CBC that they feature a comic for half, half an hour, Joe Bodolai, he was in the audience of the Nubians in Toronto and he said, I want to give you a comics episode like that, you know, and I, and I was two years in. Like everything happens so fast. I hit the glass ceiling in Canadian comedy very fast. Two years in my career. You know, you know how much they hated me, the older white comics? They hated me because, uh, can you imagine? Because <laughs> I can imagine. The little lesbian from Nicaragua got the show that they were longing for. You first ended up in Montreal. How you ended up in Montreal? Because something your mother decided. Yeah. I remember you telling me that story. Could you tell it me again? Yes, because my mother, she found my diary. Because I had two diaries, right? The one that I left laying around for her to see and the one that I kept in secret. But she found the real one and she found out that I was having lesbian thoughts. And I was infatuated to the point of uh, kissing and hugging and everything, this nun, this novice. She, she wasn't a nun, she was a novice who was older than me. She was uh, 23 and I was 14. I was 15. But my mother found it, and then I had a friend at the time. I had a very close friend who was my girlfriend, actually, and my mother decided to stop me from becoming a full-fledged lesbian. She had to send me away, and she sent me to a relative in Montreal, which is like Disneyland for lesbians. And <laughs> then they, my parents, my parents had, they had to leave Nicaragua. They had to flee Nicaragua because they had worked for the dictator at one point in time. And they thought that the Sandinistas were coming after them. But later on, they found, they found out that they weren't. But my parents left from Nicaragua and asked asylum in Guatemala. And I was here with a student visa. I was in Montreal with my student visa. But I had no, other, no place to go back. My student visa expired. I had no country because my father, my parents were in Guatemala. I couldn't go back to Nicaragua. I had no papers in Guatemala. My friend, his father was from Nicaragua, and he had asked for political asylum here, uh, due that he was a Sandinista. But my friend, Francisco, is his name, Francisco Cuadra, he told me, why don't you apply for political refugee status? I am not political. I have never, I, I, I never participated in it. Yeah, but because of your parents. And then I told my father, who was a lawyer, and my father sent me pictures and everything of them working for the government of, of that dictator, of Somoza. And then another serendipity thing, I started babysitting for this Jewish lawyer in Montreal, Mr. Stephen Corda. And they loved me so much, they, they, their child loved me so much that he said Corda sent me to Julius Gray, famous human rights lawyer in Montreal. And Julius helped me pro bono, you know, to get my papers. So that's how I started. But I didn't, I was 17. I just wanted to stay in Canada because I already was going to be shacking up with my first girlfriend in Canada. So it wasn't, you know what I mean? Everything has to do with lesbianism and comedy. Everybody asked me, why didn't you call for your parents when they could have had a political refugee status here? 
First, I didn't because both my parents were lawyers. I knew they didn't speak English. So even though I could have helped them technically, they could have applied here. I always told them that they couldn't because I had discovered lesbianism. My closet became Canada, right? <laughs> and besides, they were better off in Guatemala. My mother was a very hard worker, one of the first lawyer, the first lawyers in, in Nicaragua, women lawyers. My father died in 82, but my, my mother raised my other siblings alone and in a new country and everything. I didn't see her coming here and being a cleaning lady, which is what she would have been because she didn't speak the language. She wouldn't have never been able to follow her career here. In Nicaragua and everything, lawyers are not rich or anything. She, she worked paycheck to paycheck. At the beginning, she worked under the protocol of another lawyer. And then eventually at 65 years old, my mother got her equivalence to practice her in her own office at 65, imagine. Amazing, even though we, we had our fights because she was homophobic, I admire what she was. And I am built like her. I am just like her, you know. If I had known all the sacrifices that entailed to get your papers in Canada and forge yourself a life in Canada, I would have been terrified and I would have run back to my parents, even if I didn't have papers there. If I had known everything that uh, implied becoming a stand-up comedian in Canada, making a name for yourself, I would have been terrified and I would, I would have become an accountant. But, they, <laughs> but I would have never been happy. Whereas I am not rich, because in Canada, entertainers are not rich. And we live paycheck to paycheck. But I have done what I love through my life. I have done what makes me happy. Now, with this pandemic, I have had a lot of time to reflect. And I believe that people have to reinvent themselves because we don't know how long we'll do without entertainment. I believe that people, human beings need to be entertained. I believe that the arts heal your spirit. But when the virus is so contagious that a touch and a laughing can get spread, I don't know. You remember in the days of HIV, people would, would harp on the fact that, remember because all the homophobia went to the fact people didn't want to touch gay people, remember that? Oh, yeah. And then uh, they would say, no, you can hug an HIV patient. It is not contagious by saliva. It's not contagious by a handshake. It's not contagious by a hug or a kiss. But now... All of that is contagious. As plagues go, this one, I think, is the worst that we have lived. Yeah. And from your experience, you've performed all over the country, all over the world. All over, everywhere. The Canadian Armed Forces, CFS Alert, and in Egypt, Israel, Afghanistan. Even you performed in front of 43,000 people. At the Panam Games. Panam Games. I entertain prime ministers. I have entertained prime ministers and the presidents because at the Pan Am game, they, there was Harper and there were some other dignitaries, uh, presidents from another country. And I entertained Trudeau. I emceed a show for Trudeau that he was the guest of honor for uh, EGAL, Human Rights Organization. They gave him a, an award for being an ally of the LGBTQ, LMNOPQ, or STUV. <laughs> Um, yeah. a group, you know, and I was the MC, so I got to meet him and, and have selfies with Trudeau. I have met, as a refugee, I haven't done bad, you know, I have met Trudeau, I have met Jack Mead, I have met Andrea, I met Mrs. Wynn, 
So I have I have done well. The only thing is that at one point, like in the early 2000s, I had the intention to go to live in the United States. But my mother got sick with cancer in the brain. So all the little money that I have put away, maybe $25,000 that I have made in, in little parts of movies and stuff. And I, that was for my trip to LA, but I went to stay with her and help pay for her, for her operation and everything because they don't have health care there. When I came back one year and a half later, I met Linda. And then when I met Linda, I lost total interest in go, in moving to L.A. because she would move. And I said, I have to make it work here in Canada. And if it doesn't work, if I never become a household name in Canada, if I never become rich and famous, well, so be it. I'm not going to go to L.A. Basically, the times that I have done shows there, it's different. I, I don't like it. I can adapt to anything. I have done shows in little, little towns in um, in northern Alberta, Susan Marie, at North Bay, everywhere. Places where they have never seen a Latina maybe performing. And in L.A., there are a lot of Latinos. But the times that I went, it was so cutthroat. I came in, you know, I had very good management. I had three arts as management. They dropped me because I never moved there and I never did uh, make the move. So I lost that management in reality here in Canada. But the times that I went, the other Latin comics didn't know where I had shown up from. You know, they didn't know what, what, what is it that I came. They thought that I was one of them and I had chops. Because one thing I can tell about the Canadian comics, we have chops that in Los Angeles, they don't have, because in Los Angeles, you do five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. In Los Angeles, you don't have the luxury that we have here to play for 45 minutes and to learn and to be on stage every weekend. So I was very good to their view. I was excellent. And you should have seen, you should have seen like immediately this, this, uh, this bad energy against me because they thought that I was coming to take their place. You know, you know how it is. Some people think that there is only one piece of meat. And no other dog is allowed to get it. That's what they think. <laughs> Do you think you're a household name in Canada? Do you think, as comedians go, you're well-known? Oh, yeah, I'm well-known because of because News, the show with Gavin Crawford. Right. I get played a lot on the CBC. Sometimes, even with my mask during the pandemic, I am at the grocery store and I say something and people will turn. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you on the CBC? Are you Maria? Because <laughs> they never, you can be famous, but they don't get your name right. Oh, yeah, Marta Chavez. Yeah, Marta Chavez. Yes, I hear you a lot. And, and it's, it's curious. People always tell me, you know what? I was listening to your jokes and I had to park so I could laugh well. And, and this, is, this has been random people that tell me the same story. They were in their car. And they had to park. I don't know why you can't drive and laugh at the same time. But yeah, the CBC has made me somehow famous. <laughs> That's good. I have my own podcast too. Uh, it's produced by the Nobel Women's Initiative, which is uh, run by nine Nobel Peace Prize winners. It is produced by them. They choose the guests. And I, it's called When Feminists Rule the World. It is very interesting. I have had a woman, for example, that I interviewed on this season that is coming out soon. Her name is Daya Khan. This is a woman who has interviewed the Taliban. She has interviewed the Taliban. She did like the big boss of the Taliban. She went and interviewed and lived among 
white supremacists, women from all over the world, then they come and they talk about issues that are happening now, like killer robots was the subject of one. And I have big, big, big uh, names. A woman, for example, that she left this industry because she found out that they were going to have unmanned machines to kill for war. Very interesting people I have. When Feminists Rule the World is the name and the second season is coming up. It's produced by Media Style from Ottawa and the Nobel's Women's Initiative from Ottawa. And I am the host. I try to make it funny, but, but we talk very heavy subjects. In comparison, I am the layperson. They are the experts and I'm learning from them. It's a good format. Martha, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I get to tell people that I admire them and I admire you. You not only make people laugh, but you make people think and you're an activist. How easy is it to make comedy about Canadian politics? It's not that easy. It's becoming easier because usually you make fun of assholes and you're finding out more and more. I used to have this conception about Canadian politics when I wasn't that immersed in it, that if this was the best country in the world. I heard that from all the comics. This is the best country in the world. I live in the best country in the world. And because Canada has given me so much in the sense of embracing me, I in my head, I, I, I now know that I have been victim of racism, but it just, <laughs> I didn't notice. But I, I just uh, let it slide, you know, like a dog. But now that I think about things that comedians, my peers have said about me before bringing me up on stage, like nobody understands what one word she says. And here she is, Marta Chavez. Or they would say, after I had done a great show and I have killed people laughing, they would say, Marta Chavez, nobody understood one word she said. Different MCs. And now, if it happened now, I would really call them out on the racism. But at the time, it bothered me. But I I just said, well, you know, there is no point. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of getting mad. I thought that Canada had given me so much, embracing me, giving me my, my political refugee status. And, and I have learned so much. I have lived most of my life in Canada. I don't know Nicaragua as I know Canada. Nicaragua, I went where my parents took me. At the time, I, I, practically, I don't know anything about the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua, and it's a little country of six million people. But uh, when I was growing up, my parents took us uh, close to Managua. We had the, the beaches close to Managua and everything. We didn't explore more. But here in Canada, I've been everywhere in Nunavut, in the Yukon. I have been everywhere. And I thought, I have always thought that I was really lucky. I loved. Pierre Trudeau, because he gave me my papers, you see. And then I started becoming aware and more aware, aware, aware of politics when the G20, because I had colleagues that got beat up. Remember that in Toronto, the riots and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I started getting involved. Like I did a, a rally with Judy Rebic, badass, extraordinary. So I did this, this rally, I emceed a, a rally for the environment in January. And then Judy, Reddy, Judy Rebic, we met. And then Judy invited me to host with Naomi Klein. <laughs> Naomi Klein, I'm dropping names now. With Naomi Klein. No, because all of these badasses, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm like an idiot. I am a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I wake up late and I watch late night television. 
But I, I, that was another serendipitous, my activism, another thing that I felt in it because of Judy and people. So I started getting interested. Then I met you and all the beefs with uh, Rob Ford. <laughs> and then I got involved full blast. I went with the Nobel Women's Initiative. They invited me to go as a delegate to Central America and Mexico to hear about the malpractices of Canadian mining companies. And that was another awareness. That was another, like, you know, take away the veil of my eyes. I always thought that it was the gringos who see, who did that, the Americans. We don't hear about Canadians because we don't, in Central America, they don't identify Canadian or American. You're just gringo. And I didn't know, but I went to hear in the worst practices in Guatemala, the worst are the Canadian mines. And then uh, it was another discovery, like uh, it was heartbreaking for me. It was like discovering that my adoptive mother beat up my grandmother. That's like my natural grandmother because indigenous people in Guatemala are exploited by my adoptive mother, you know? So I started getting interested in, in, in all of those subjects and now that's all I think about. So now, Making fun of Canadian politics is is less interesting than making fun of the bully because Canadians are like the little brother of the bully. Mm-hmm. They may be a bully too, but it's, it's like uh, the little brother that gets dragged in all of the adventures of the bully. Bully by proxy, I would say. <laughs> but then you're reading and reading more like oh, everything I learned in my Canadian citizenship test is garbage now compared to everything I have learned about the Sir John A. Macdonald and about the black people in, in Halifax and all of those things. Like you live, you learn. The internet is a weapon, a double-edged sword. Thank God that I have always been open to learning. I remember your generosity. I phoned you and asked you to perform for free. I'm sure you got asked to perform for free a lot. A lot. And we had a meeting. It was around the Olympics in Sochi and Russia. And I said, could you come to the meeting and just speak and make us laugh so that we can start the meeting off in a joyous way? And you came and it was so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I do free things now. I choose very well what I do because, uh, you know, there are the charities that are dear to my heart. Everything has to be with the gay cause or, or even now we have a lot of intersectionality on meetings, on uh, on protests. I, I, I wanted to go to the Black Lives Matter protest, but I just didn't want to get the, the virus to get me. Right. Well, you have to be careful. You have to be careful because who's going to do the revolution if everybody dies, you know, at the protest? More important, who's going to laugh at the revolution if you're not around? We need to laugh. Exactly. No, in, but, but I felt guilty that I didn't go because I, I thought if you're badass, you have to go in spite of the virus. You have to just put your mask and go. But the fear of, of getting it was stronger because I know like the way I, I cough when I get a cold and an asthma attack, I know that I will not survive that fucking virus. Then, no, no. And I don't want to leave my Linda alone and my siblings and my yeah. nana who depends on me because I am the one who supports her. It's an important moment in history now. I really do hope that it's not swept under the carpet when it's not in style anymore to be saying Black Lives Matter and all of that. I really do hope that we follow the momentum. We make politicians 
not only do the talk, but do the walk too. I am appalled what happened to Jack Mead, seeing that uh, he was kicked out of the House of Commons right. for calling the French-Canadian MP, calling them racist, because the, the Parti Québécois is racist. This is the, the people that, that wanted to have a distinct society, that claim they have a distinct society, that talk about the concept of pure land, pure land Québécois. As I said, I didn't realize that people were being racist. You know why it is? Because uh, I come from privilege, from Nicaragua, and uh, I adapted very quickly to live my third world here. Like, you know, I was a cleaning lady. I did anything that gave me some money in the time that my parents couldn't support me anymore. I had no idea what welfare was. I had nobody to tell me to get this help, monetary help. No, I have always worked. And so I did the cleaning lady thing when I didn't know how to clean anything because we had help in Nicaragua. Everybody, all my whole family adapted. My parents, when they went to Guatemala, we lost everything. In Nicaragua, everything. They ended up at a convent the first few days that they were there. And then other Nicaraguans were there before them, helped them out. But everything is like from one day to the other, everything changed. And then my father, he passed away two years into it. My mother survived him for 30 years. My mother was very, very strong person. So when that happened to me, I just adapted to the fact I had to work. But now in retrospect, I remember that when I started working at Le Chateau, <laughs> at Le Chateau in Montreal, <laughs> they would call in the speakers, in the voiceover skipping, Où est que est la petite Mexicaine? Where is the little Mexican? <laughs> because there were some Spanish customers at Le Chateau that they didn't speak French or English. So they were, where is the little Mexican? And I will go, I will gladly go, even though they were categorizing me from another country. I thought, yeah, why do I care? They call me the little Mexican. I didn't know those experiences, those racism. I, I, I let them slide. I didn't even know, you know, until I started getting educated. And I went with Linda. We went uh, in 2013. She came with me to Montreal. And she was in shock to see the difference of treatment to me from Quebec to Ontario. Like probably they had gone through the, through that they were going to ban the hijabs and everything. They were with the most racist uh, government and they were rude, even to her who is white, even to her because she's English, right? But I love Montreal. I'm just saying that there were instances of, of discrimination and r racism. I didn't look at them because I saw the other things. I saw I'm an immigrant and I'm getting to be in the Just for Laugh Festival, the biggest comedy festival in the world. I am an immigrant and I get a TV show in the CBC. I, am an, I saw other things. I did notice, though, that some colleagues were jealous and they saw the immigrant getting things. So I always work extra hard to be considered half as good, Right. <laughs> you know? Like what's her name said, like Gloria Steinem said, you have, when you're a woman, you have to work extra hard to be considered half as good, especially if you're an immigrant woman, lesbian. You're on steroids to work so hard if you're a lesbian immigrant woman, for sure. Oh, yeah. You know how it is for us. But now they will have to reckon all of these fucking racist homophobes. <laughs> <laughs> like because you know the the younger generation of comics, those ones they don't take anything. They don't take any at all. Like I remember that they, I had colleagues that would touch my tits, 
and they would honk, honk, honk. And I thought, you know, that's a, it's a joke. I didn't think it was sexual assault. Do it to one of the new girls now or the new boys. No, 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 no. You're going, you, they destroy your career. They cancel you. Believe you learn. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you laugh, uh, Martha? What, what makes you laugh? Linda makes me laugh. Linda is very funny, you know, like, uh, no, there are a lot of things that make me laugh, like, uh, uh, and there are a lot of things that make other people laugh, but they don't make me laugh because I'm studying. But all comedians are like that. We are, we, when we are watching a great comic, we are just, we are kind of learning. I imagine that it must be like when you play uh, the guitar in the park and then you see uh, Andres Segovia or when, when you see Jimi Hendrix, you're just in awe, like, uh, of, of seeing great comedians. Although co- comedians, all, we all believe that we are better than the one we are seeing. <laughs> I could be doing that. What the fuck? <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of comics that make me laugh. There is uh, Jessica Kirsten, lesbian comedian, make me laugh. There is uh, a lot of the Canadian comics make me laugh. And Linda, Linda is silly. Linda, and Linda knows a lot of comedy, like because of her father. Her father was invited when he was young to write with Wayne and Schuster. Oh, my God. He didn't want to take the family with them. But but her father was PR for Labatt Labatt Beer. And so he wrote commercials and everything. Linda have seen all of the comics that I I didn't even see, like Bob Newhar and uh, Robert Klein. Who else, Linda? Rowan and Martin. But when you consume so much comedy, when you see it because you work in it, it is uh, harder to laugh. But everything, like, you know, I'm, a, I'm an easy laugh. The pandemic has been making me laugh because uh, of how we have adapted to certain things. You have to find what to laugh. You know, all the things that we, in secret, have ordered from Amazon because, you, of course, we have to boycott it. But if it wasn't for the fucking Amazon, we would have been bored to death. <laughs> you I wouldn't have my microphone, this uh, the podcast microphone. I wouldn't have like I have had to buy a lot of things that are related to my new business, which is uh, you know to perform in the quiet, in the quiet, to the walls of my own home. You know, I went to Value Village the other day. Okay. The day that they opened, they reopened Value Village. I was ecstatic, and, and you would think that if if you want to catch the germ, I mean the the <laughs> virus is at Value Village, Bed Box and Beyond. You know. <laughs> but I needed a red curtain, a, a red velvet curtain to to record the show. So I went and I found my red velvet curtain. So they, they make you wait in line at Value Village. They, then when you get there, they spray you with hand sanitizer. So then I go with my um, my shield, my plastic shield, my uh, alcohol. I'm spraying everything and. Uh, the way that, that, that we are getting used to. I, you know what I got? I got a plague mask. All right. I got a plague mask. And I can't wait to wear it because, you know, that especially here in the gay village, I hate these fucking people. They have never respected the six feet rule. I don't, I don't believe gay guys believe that we are going through a plague. I don't think so. I am five feet two. If I lay down between the, 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 their space, I won't fit. I would have to be in a fetal position. <laughs> Nobody's respecting. Nobody wears a mask. Nobody wears a mask. No, no. I don't know what it is. What is it? And now with, with pride, 
they are going to open the patios. Believe me, the virus will, will gallop in all of its splendor there because nobody's respecting. I'm really afraid of that. What do you think about the mask? I think if anything, the bottom line is just respect. Even if you just do it, just do it to respect other people. That's my belief. And I think we're going too fast. We have to slow down. Yeah, we, we have to slow down, but they are, they are pressuring. They, I, I think that even Dog 4 acted well in some senses well. at the beginning. Like before I would see him on TV and I would like, there is that fucking fat fuck. <laughs> Look at that fat fuck from TV as if I am not fat myself. <laughs> Look at that fucking idiot fat fuck ignoramus. And then all of a sudden I, I heard myself calling him doggies on TV. <laughs> <laughs> What is happening to me? I am calling him dog. <laughs> dog is on TV. And uh, and I, I wake up every day just to see if Justin's hair had grown a little bit more. I wanted him to look like a musketeer, you know, like long. But now he caught it already. Oh, he did. Oh, you're up on the news. Oh, yeah, I'm up on the news. I see it all the time. And then, of course, my obsession with Trump. But I've been a little bit away now because it is it's getting me sick. Yeah. Is getting me sick, but my obsession with Trump is also because my brother is a fundamentalist Christian. Oh, the one that has MS actually, and uh, we are not even friends on Facebook because I don't want to see his post, and he probably doesn't want to see mine. But I just, just like, uh, don't you realize this motherfucker is like that? Don't you realize like that he's a crazy person? But I think it is a cult. The Trump thing is a cult. They, it's like telling people, look, Charlie Manson is crazy. Telling right. to the Manson girls, he's not. He's, he's going to make you kill people. I hope that they really get banned from coming to here. I hope that we become like Cuba. No Americans. <laughs> 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 Which is the biggest enticement to go to Cuba. No <laughs> Americans. I have, you know, like I don't hate them individually. Uh-huh. When they ask uh, Trudeau, when they ask him, what he thought about Trump. Remember when he took a long time to answer? 21 seconds. 21 seconds. It's like when you ask a dog something and the dog, the dog looks at you and bends his head and he's not understanding anything. It's like that. But I think that the silence said everything. I think that he, he, he couldn't answer because, you know, this fucking guy is crazy and he could nuke us. <laughs> And at the very least, uh-huh. what if he cut our Netflix? They cut American Netflix. We are fucked. We are fucked. <laughs> they, they cut our cable. We only have Anne of Green Gables. We are fucked. Uh, so I was glad that he didn't diss uh, the bully, you know? <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's a perfect way. That's a perfect way to end this, Martha. We've been talking about so many things. Yes. Your work on CBC, I love when you're on the debaters. You're so smart and you're so funny. And thank you, thank you. And you've been very generous for your time. If I asked you, I think I'd have more for more. I'd have to pay you. No, 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 no. You don't have to pay me. I can always talk with you. I love you. And uh, I had uh, this coffee that is called the Keto Coffee, and I became chatty. Okay. I did. I became very chatty. I haven't talked this much since the Ruth Canal. <laughs> Okay, sweetheart, thank you for having me. Martha, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Gracias, bye-bye.
Thanks so much, Martha, for this. I hope that root canal pain subsides and you're back in front of that velvet curtain soon. And now for some music. I am grateful to be surrounded by many creative people, some of them right next door. This song by the Salt Sellers, Want to Be With You, was created in spite of the pandemic and the video because of it. The video of this song was shot on each band member's cell phone and cut together by the master editor, Peter Chatterton. It looks as amazing as it sounds, and I encourage you to check out the Salt Sellers. I have linked to this video and the band's pages worth the click. So here are the Salt Sellers with Want to Be With You. it episode 21 of Hibla Minute I want to thank my guest Martha Chavez and if you're listening to this and you pulled over to listen now you can merge safely into traffic and thank you to the salt sellers it's always a pleasure to play your great music and I want to take this time to thank all my guests and all the musicians I have played in the 21 episodes of Hibla Minute 
It has been such a wonderful and connecting experience for me. It was jump-started by the pandemic with my need to connect and help other people connect to get the word out, support important initiatives, talk to people, think about things, and have fun. Now it's time for a break. I'll be taking two weeks off and back in July. So if you haven't listened to all the Hibla Minutes, now is your chance to catch up. And if you know anyone who you think would be a great interview, maybe you would. And if you know a musician or a band that I could play, let me know. The best thing about doing Hibla Minute is finding out you're listening and what you think of the show. So thank you all for Season 1, and Hibla Minute Season 2 will be here soon. Until then, this is Roy Mitchell, and this has been Hibla Minute.